Don't sit down just yet. We're going to do um, some interactive reading. Get your Bibles out, if you would, for me, and open them up to Psalm 136. And stay standing, if you would, just for a moment as you get your Bibles out. Psalms 136. And uh, this week, or last week, was career day. How many of your kids had to do career day? Where you had to go and shadow somebody else? Well, today you're all doing career day, and you're all going to be preacher for a day. And so I'm going to have you guys help me preach this morning. So I'm going to read the first half of each verse in Psalm 136. And I'd like for you to read the second part of each verse. And um, hopefully the nine o'clock service, they they were still half asleep. So they didn't quite totally get it. You guys are going to do much better. I know it. Um, But we're going to, it should build as it goes and you should feel it and and, and the the crescendo goes. And so as, as we go on through the reading, the, the volume goes up, the excitement goes up, spirits moving. So Psalm 136, I'll read the first half and you guys will read the second half of um, the chapter. For those of you that are slow Bible page turners, I'm going to um, give you a second. But in a minute, you guys are all going to be up to speed. Psalm 136, here we go. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders. To him whom by wisdom made the heavens. To him who laid out the earth above the waters. To him who made great lights. The sun to rule by day. The moon and the stars to rule by night. To him who struck Egypt in their firstborn. And brought out Israel from among them. With a strong hand and with an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down kings. And slew famous kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to Israel, his servant. Who remembered us in our lowly state. And rescued us from our enemies. Who gives food to all flesh. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, to the God of heaven. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, we're ready for 2 Peter chapter 2 today. So I'm super excited about our study in 2 Peter chapter 2 today. I have to tell you, today is probably, or this area of ministry is probably one of my least favorite things that I get to do or, or really have to do as a pastor. And we'll get into what that is exactly through 2 Peter chapter 2. But last week, 
um, I was super pumped because someone came up to me after service and asked me to remind them and repeat what we learned last week. There was three points, and every one of them had to do with the Word of God. And so Peter shares with us as he's going through that... um, the first thing he said was that people die, and much like we just repeated, but, the, but the, his mercy endures forever. These are followed by, but the word endures forever. And so people die, but... That's for you guys now. Here we go. The people die, but the word endures forever. And then experiences change, but the word endures forever. And the world gets darker, but the word endures forever. And so that was the the message last week where Peter takes um, this chapter in his epistle and and he tells us about the power of the word of God changing our lives. You know, I I can see in you guys. I really can. I I look around and, you know, I've I've got to know you guys in a couple years that I've been here. I've seen you guys grow in Christ. And one of the things that always stands out is people who are in the word of God, you can see it in their lives. That, that's just the bottom line. Their lives are blessed. They grow in Jesus. They, 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 God uses them. God blesses their finances. He blesses their emotions. He blesses their health. And, and not to say this happy, healthy, wealthy doctrine. I don't preach that. I don't teach that. Not that God's desire and only desire for your life is to be happy, healthy, wealthy. But here's the bottom line. In life, period. And then I could get into this and give you examples and share. But, but people who, who are really committed to read your Bible and pray every day. And I know it sounds simple and I know it sounds, uh, you know, remedial that it's that simple, but that's what the word of God teaches is that there's something about, and, and the whole idea is we get in the word of God to meet Jesus. And when, and when you read the word, you find the God of the word, you find the author of the word is Jesus and you get to know him personally and intimately and it radically changes your life. And I can see I'm, I'm a fruit inspector. And I can see fruits in, in Christians' lives um, that, that are in the Word. And the fruit is, is, is obvious that someone's got a dirty mind in here. Who laughed when I said I was a fruit inspector? <laughs> oh, it was me. Oh, I'm the one with the dirty mind. They weren't thinking that at all. Um, all right. Whoa. It's not Valentine's Day anymore, right? All right. So, so after, listen, after he goes through and he spends a chapter of going through the power of the word of God in our lives. It brings us to where we are today. I want you to read with me, if you will, and just look at the highlights in chapter two. We're just going to read those bold letters above um, the, each section in chapter two. The first one says um, destructive doctrines. Okay. The second one says doom of, and then the next one says depravity of, and then the last one says deceptions of, okay. Anybody have any idea what chapter two is about? You guys are smart. You guys are bright. This is the exceptional class in here today. It's about false teachers. So after he spends a a, a chapter in telling us in the power of the word of God in your life and my life, now he's going to give us a warning of false teachers. One of the things that um, my title is as a pastor, and it goes with it, is a shepherd. That's, that's really the call. And God's given me a shepherd's heart since I was a boy. It's something that I could go back and I could look at my life and I can see where God was, was giving me certain gifts that, that one day I was going to give and try to use for his glory. But, but there, I've always had a shepherd's heart. And that, that's part of being a pastor and, and leading people is being a shepherd. And, and, and Peter, who wrote this, do you remember on the beach and Jesus appeared to him? What did Jesus tell him three times? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then what was Jesus' response? Feed my sheep. 
So, so obviously, Peter is, is a shepherd. He, he's a shepherd's heart. All the apostles, they were, they were shepherds. Uh, Paul, who, who says basically the same thing, was a shepherd of God's flock. And, and as a shepherd, now put yourself in Peter's shoes and in a shepherd's shoes, and you have a flock of sheep, and your job is to make sure that they're well watered and well fed. And that part of your job is that they're cared for and that they stay together and they don't wander off. But, but another part of your job is that when a wolf comes into the sheepfold, what is your job as a shepherd? Well, if you're a good, if you're a good shepherd, you've got to kill the wolf. You, you, you have to run off. You have to kill the wolf. Because if you don't, the wolf is going to do what? He's going to eat the sheep. So, so Jesus uses this, this shepherd, sheep, um, wolf analogy. And Jesus said that some are going to show up as wolf in sheep's clothing. And that's what Peter is talking about among these false teachers. But you know what? You know what happens in church? And I've been a pastor 20 years. And oftentimes, I, I have to make a judgment. It's one of the jobs. Not the, it's the, the least favorite job I have to do. And I try to do it tactfully. And sometimes there's no tact. You just got to tell people to kick rocks and don't ever show up again. But, but tactfully, I try. But there's times where people are not welcome here. And, and there's times where people come and they've come enough or, or, or there's enough fruit that they're a wolf in sheep's clothing. And I'll ask them that I'll give them the left hand of fellowship and, and you know, leave and don't come back. You're not welcome here. And, and someone in the church will be aware that I did that and they'll be mad at me. They'll be offended that, you know, this is the church, isn't it for everybody? And aren't people welcome? And you just ran that person off and told them they're not allowed to come back anymore. But yet as a shepherd, you you have, it's not, like I said, it's not, it's the least favorite job I have to do. But when God gives me discernment that someone is a sheep in in wolves, no, yeah, someone is a wolf in sheep's clothing, the honorable, the right, the, the biblical thing to do is to run them off. And so um, this is what Peter's warning us for, that they come. And when they come, we have to be able to recognize them. You know, you have to be able to recognize a, a false prophet or a false teacher. The whole, the whole section, again, is doom of false teachers, depravity of false teachers, deception of false teachers. And so let's get into Second Peter chapter 2 and get from Peter how to, how to recognize and how to be on guard from false teachers and false prophets. And the first thing Peter tells us is just be aware that they're there in case you didn't know. Listen, it says in chapter 2 in verse 1, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false prophets among you. Who's that you in there? That's you. So Peter's talking about now and then in the future for the people that read this letter um, by the Holy Spirit that in the last days and, and in the days that you and I live, false, false teachers will arise. You know, one of the things that happened in the early church was a tremendous amount of plagiarism. And, and plagiarism today is somebody else writes something. My wife writes a wonderful piece and, and, and I take it and I steal everything she wrote in it and put my name on it. And then I tell everybody I wrote it and then they find out she wrote it and I'm guilty of plagiarism. Well, in the, in the early days, in the early church, it worked a little differently. That people would write things that were extra biblical, that were um, false, that were, that were leading people astray. And if they put it out there with their own name on it, Nobody would um, believe it or receive it. So they would steal the apostle's name and put Peter's name on it or Paul's name on it. And then they would try to send it out. And, and they were plagiarizing by the, the authorship. 
And a lot of this happened in the first century. And, you know, the, the Holy Spirit and through the years of re- bringing us to the canon that we, had, we have today through, through a process of, of, of weeding that stuff out to get us to the canon and the actual word, the letters that were written by the apostles, the one that meet the criteria that we have in our Bible today. God didn't make a mistake. The Holy Spirit didn't make a mistake. And, and we have exactly the way that God put it together, weeding that out. So Peter is saying... First thing, beware that they're out there and they're going to be. And then listen, in verse 2, who will secretly be in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them and brings them out swift destruction. So the first thing Peter tells us in, in identifying a false prophet or a false teacher, number one is that they would deny the Lord. Who, who's Peter talking about specifically in verse 2? Or verse 1, I'm sorry. <coughs> who? Come on, y'all. Jesus. When the answer is Jesus, preach it, right? Um, and then if you're not sure that it's Jesus, because it just says denying the Lord, which is Jesus, it says, who bought them? Who bought you? How, what did he buy you with? With his blood. And so he's talking specifically about Jesus. And he says the first thing of a false prophet is they deny Jesus. And so the, 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 the mark of an ism, a schism, a cult, anything that that, that is... Um, outside of biblical Christianity, number one is always Jesus. And that's where Peter starts. Anywhere where they diminish the role of Jesus, the person of Jesus. We can agree, we can disagree on doctrine in the church of baptism and speaking in tongues and gifts of the Spirit and, and different things. But we have to have the right Jesus. You have to get Jesus right and who he was. And being the son of God and being God and being fully God and fully man. And that Jesus, the God of heaven, the creator of all things, came and gave his life for you and for me. And anywhere where they diminish or deny that, we, we have the, the, the first mark of, of something that, that Peter warns us to be aware of. You know what Jesus said in the same thing in verse um, in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus speaking here, words in red in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, listen. Beware, you guys ready, of false prophets. Even our Lord warned us of the same thing, that, that we were going to see in our day false prophets. And so when it's words in red, some of you say, well, that's Peter. He's going to go down the ranks. Well, this is Jesus. These are words in red. He said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. This is where Jesus uses that example of a wolf in sheep's clothing. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes and figs from thistles? So he says, you'll know them by their fruits. Now, now there's times where I will call out by name, a ministry, a pastor who, who I would warn the flock that I believe to be a false prophet, a false teacher, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And again, oftentimes sheep see me run off what they think is another sheep and then they're mad. And, and the same thing, you know, people might tell me they come and say, oh, well, you know, the Bible says don't judge. Stupidest thing you could say. If you if you if you use that line, please read just a couple chapters first before you say that again and understand what that means. Because everybody, especially the atheists, I always want to quote that. Oh, the Bible says Jesus said, "Don't judge, lest you be judged." You're judging them. Well, if you keep reading, first of all, when Jesus said, "Don't judge, lest you be judged," this is what it says. The word "judge" is condemnation to damnation. It's not my job, and nor your job as a Christian, ever to be the judge of somebody's salvation. You're not to look at somebody and say, that person is going to hell. That person is going to heaven because you're not their judge. Only God is the judge of their salvation. So that tattoo everybody writes on there, you know, I don't know why everybody and their mom has to have that tattoo. Only God can judge me. Like, doesn't that scare you? 
You know, like, yeah, yeah, only God can judge you. That's true, but that should scare you. That shouldn't be a boast. But only God can judge me. But when it comes to judging, we're not to judge somebody's salvation. So example would be, you take a guy like a th- the thief on the cross. He was a rotten, terrible guy. By, by our standards today, by society standards, we would all agree that he deserved the death penalty. And when we seen him on death row and on the electric chair and the phone call went to the governor to see if they were going to pardon him, we would all be saying, do not pardon him. He deserves the death penalty for what he did. He was a murderer and a thief, an insurrectionist. He was a bad person his whole life. He never went to church. He never gave a dollar to the church. He never got baptized. He never did anything good. He never helped an old lady across the street and carried her groceries. He was a rotten person. And if we're just judging this thief on the cross based on his life, and it's an hour before the Romans come in and and arrest this guy, and a day later he's on a cross next to Jesus, and you and I have to decide whether he's going to heaven or hell, what are we going to decide based on his life and his fruit? He's going to hell. It's pretty obvious. Look at his life. He's going to hell. But yet, is that guy in hell? No, he's not in hell. He's in heaven. He repented. He, he, he asked Jesus to forgive him. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So when it comes to judging, you know, I used to always tell a joke about uh, Jerry Garcia. You know, after he died, I'd say, oh, he's not so gratefully dead anymore because it's hot where he's at. But, you know, really, honestly, I, I probably shouldn't be saying that because that's judging someone's to, to, to damnation. And I don't know. I don't know that he didn't repent on his deathbed. And, and, and so, but then listen, it, when Jesus says, do not judge lest you be judged, that's the context that he's talking in. Then if you go down a couple verses, Jesus said, you better judge. You better judge and you better, if you have any kind of wisdom in your head, you better judge and use righteous judgment. Because you're a fool if you don't judge. Little kid comes to your house, 12 years old, he reeks of marijuana and he's all twisted up and he says, hey, can your kid come play with me? You think it's wise to use a little judgment there? Not today. Why don't you come back next Tuesday after never? Like we, we, we have to use righteous judgment. We have to make judgments and characters and, you know, we, 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 we judge, right? It's, it's part of what we do, but it's, it's a different, it's not unto damnation or condemnation. And so when, when we see a false prophet, we're supposed to make a righteous judgment. And how do we know him? Jesus said, you'll know him by their fruits. And that's where we get this idea of fruit inspector. So, you know, basically what we do is we look at people's ministries. We look at their lives. We look at, you know, and we, we judge it based on fruit. And we can do that. That's the judging we're supposed to do. And then, and then kind of a, a hard pill to swallow, I think. But, you know, sometimes when you see a false ministry or a false teacher, and on the outside, everything looks so good. You know, the Bible says that with, for these certain groups that they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power thereof. And so you see a, a group and they're, they're maybe an ism or a schism or a cult, and, but yet you see this good stuff that comes out and you see righteous people and people that have a real heart. You think, well, are, are they getting it? Like, are they finding a way to heaven? Are they being saved through this, this system and this religion, even though we know it's false and it's not true? And, you know, I struggle with that because you'll see in, in people's lives and you'll see uh, people who have a real heart and, and they themselves are deceived by deception and want to do what's right and want to serve when it comes down to it. And so, Lord, are they really condemned for it? Are they really missing it? And in answering that question, God spoke to me this verse and several others, and it's a hard pill to swallow. But the Lord says, and I think it's very clear. Listen, in verse 17, Jesus goes on in the same chapter, and he says, a good tree, a good, or sorry, even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. 
And a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. This is in the context of false prophets. Jesus said, beware of false prophets. And then he goes on and says, a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So the reality is if the tree is bad, they, they, they're not bearing good fruit. They're not in a system. They're, they're being saved. So, and then um, let's go back to Second Peter. And in verse 2, it says, And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the ways of truth will be blasphemed. You know, sometimes people want to use that as a, um, as a catalyst for truth. Well, there's a big, huge group. Peter here tells us many will follow. What did Jesus say concerning this? He said, broad is the, is the gate that leads to what? Destruction or hell. And narrow is the way that leads to salvation and few will enter thereby. Broad is the gate and many will go down. And so just sheer numbers. And, and I mean, we, we do have something that we can stand on. You know, evangelical or Christianity is the largest religion in the world. Islam is second. Um, and so... You know, it's good that we have the numbers. But again, when you see a gathering, when you see a group, when you see many, that, that's not that's not a, a factor for truth and false and lie. That It's much deeper than just that, because Peter says here, many will follow for their destructive ways because of whom the ways of truth will be blasphemed by covetousness. They will exploit you with deceptive words for a long time. Their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. And so um in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 11, in verse 14, a verse you guys probably know, and if you don't, you should know it, uh, along the same lines of deception, it says in 2 Corinthians, For such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. And so um, the first section there in verse, and then is, is first three verses is just being aware that there's false prophets out there. Amen. Okay. The next section, um, doom of false teachers. And then it says in verse number four, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood of the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered. We'll get to verse seven in a minute. So the proof of coming judgment is history of past judgment. And he starts with Satan. And it's God says he judged who was um, the worship leader of heaven, who was an archangel um, with Gabriel and Michael, one of the three top angels. And, and when you study angelology, one of the things you find is that the angels have a rank much like our military. And so you have generals and all the way down to privates and different sections and different um, um, ministries and responsibilities that angels have. The term archangel is given to three angels biblically, Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. And those are and, and under Michael is a third of the angels. Under Gabriel is a third, the care of a third of angels. And under Satan was a care of the third of the angels. And when Satan's heart was filled with pride and he said, I want to be like God. The Bible says that, that Jesus said, I saw like lightning coming from heaven as Satan was cast out of heaven. And, the, and Revelation tells us when Satan was cast out of heaven with his tail, he swept and a third of the angels went with him. So that third apparently that was under his command 
decided to follow him when he was cast from heaven. And that's what we have today as fallen angels or, or, some of you are not sure, that's what a demon is. So two-thirds of the angels that remain are, are heavenly and good and, and protectors. And those little cherub with the fat cheeks and the little, you know, bare butts, those, those are the good angels. And then the demons are the ones with the fangs and the horns. And, and so a third. And, God, and, and Peter says, first of all, the way that we know God's going to judge and the way that we know God's going to follow through with what he said is because look what he's done in the past. First, he judged Satan and kicked him out of heaven. And then he goes to Noah, Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, we have kind of this obscure story of what was going on at the time of the flood. And, and at the time of Noah's flood, um, it says, and we, we've unpacked it a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to get into it, but um, we have this term, Benaiah Elohim. And, and in English, it's, it's translated sons of God, little g. And the sons of God intermarried with the daughters of women, and they had an offspring. And this offspring was, was um, an offspring of giants. And giants were roaming the land and it was being spread. And so it is a little hard to understand exactly what was happening in Genesis chapter 6. But nonetheless, those demons, it tells us in the other place, that that left their, their boundaries that God had for them and went into the daughters of men. They were put in the abuso and trapped. And that's why when Jesus cast the demons into the swine and they ran down the side of the hill, they said, do not cast us into the abuso or that place where those demons were being held. But in Genesis chapter 6, we have where, where there's this cancer that's spreading and growing. And God raises up a guy named Noah. And for 120 years, this guy tells people that God's going to judge. God's going to judge. God's going to bring judgment. And he invites people to get on his boat. He invites people to come and escape the judgment. And for 120 years, he's a preacher of righteousness banging the pulpit and dealing with sin and talking about life and death and not holding any punches and not making anybody happy. And after like, you know, preaching it for, for years, how many people showed up to his services? Only the ones that had to, right? I, I know I'm good as a pastor. That's why I just keep having kids. I know always have like six people at church because my kids will have to be there. And that's, that's all he had. Nobody ever showed up. Nobody got converted. Nobody got changed. Can you imagine the dedication of Noah and, and um, the, the blessing of, of his, his life now in heaven of being someone who worked all day building the boat? It had never rained before. The boat wasn't near water. If it was near water, if it was like six feet from water, they couldn't have moved it six feet to get it in the water. It wasn't going anywhere. And he's building a boat in the middle of nowhere. Not near water, never rained. And he's preaching and telling people that God's going to judge the world. God's going to judge the world. God's going to judge the world. And and, and continues. And what happened? That first raindrop hit somebody's face. And I imagine they began to run to the boat. And what Noah said was true. And all the mockery and all the um, fun and all the everything they poked at him and mocked him for all those years as this Jesus freak. Because he kept saying, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Same thing we're saying today, that Jesus is coming. And then he goes on, he says, so we know the proof of his coming judgment is the history of his past judgment. In verse 7, it says, and delivered righteous lot. Now in verse 7 and 8, there's the word righteous. I want you to underline it three times. And delivered righteous lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. So this is another one. If we were judging this guy by only what the Old Testament said about him, 
we would be sure this guy's in hell. And then we have here, and we have in Hebrews, where God gives his testimony that he was righteous. And just for some of us like me that are hard-headed, that, that one is not enough, he told us three times, righteous, righteous, righteous. But you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his family. Abraham was being blessed by the Lord and his nephew Lot was there and they decided that they, they were so wealthy, both of them, there was time to split ways and their herdsmen weren't getting along. There wasn't enough pasture for the sheep. And so they decided to split ways. And Abraham said to Lot, you can choose any ground you want. And the Bible says that Lot looked up and he saw the plains of Shinar, that they were well watered and they were green and they were lush. And, and, and he, he chose the well watered areas. Uh, it was the thing that he wasn't, he didn't look up. He looked out. Never ask God, God, what is your will? Where, where's my family going to be safe? Where do you want me? He just looked up and in the flesh, he saw Las Vegas. He said, there's money there. There's fun there. And there's a party there. And so and in the beginning, Lot went and it says that he pitched his tents toward Sodom and Gomorrah, his first mistake. And then as you, you watch the progression of Lot's life going down and down and down and down the tubes, then he's, he's next to the city, and then he's in the city, and then he's a, he's a gatekeeper in the city, which means he was in the government of the city and was a player and was really involved, and his kids were involved now, and his daughters had, were married and had taken sons. And, when Lot, and then two angels came to Lot, and the Bible says the Lord didn't come, but he sent two angels to Lot to tell him they were gonna, he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And when, and when the two angels came to Lot, just before that, the Lord had spoken to Abraham the same thing. And you guys remember the story. Abraham has this like conversation with God. And he says, Lord, if there's 50 righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, would you not spare it for 50? And the Lord's like, all right, fine, Abraham. Since I like you, um, I'll spare it if there's 50. And Abraham says, well, since we're on the topic, would you spare it if there were 40? And the Lord's like, you're getting pushy, dude. All right, I'll, I'll spare it if there's 40. And then Abraham says, hey, well, Lord, do you, can I ask for one more favor? Would you spare it if there were 30? The Lord says, okay, I'll spare it if there's 30. And then and he says, well, can I just ask one more time, a little something? Would you spare it if there was 20? And then would you spare it? If, I'm sure by this time Abraham's counting on his hands. Abraham, a lot, his wife, his kids. Okay, Lord, would you spare it if there was 10? And the Lord said, I'll spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there's 10 righteous. And there weren't 10 righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and Lord sent the two angels to, to Lot's house. And they came and they appeared in the form of men. And so people saw them and they appeared to be men. And oftentimes when we see angels in the Bible, they, they look like men. And, and, and the men of Sodom and Gomorrah came out and they came to Lot's house. And they said, send those two men out, those two travelers that came to your house. We saw them come to your house. Send them out that we might know them carnally, that we might rape them and have sexual relations with them. What does Lot do? Lot says, no. He says, don't, don't. Don't hurt these men. Don't harm these men that have come to me. I have two virgin daughters and I'll send them out and you can do what you want with them. Father of the year. Terrible, right? Like heartbreaking, like wrenching this story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the depravity of Sodom and Gomorrah and where Lot had fallen. And yet, if we didn't have this New Testament commentary that Lot was righteous, you know, we, we wouldn't see it. And, and yet God, God calls him righteous. And so um, the Lord rains fire down on Sodom and Gomorrah and destroys them. And then in verse 9, it says, The Lord knows how to destroy, deliver, I'm sorry, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust for punishment in the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanliness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. 
Whereas angels, listen in verse 11, who are greater in power and might, I underlined that in my Bible, greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation be them before the Lord. So two verses I want you to write next to verse 11. Jude chapter 1, verse 9, Jude 1, 9, and Revelation 12, 7. So first of all, it says that angels are greater in power and might than you. So next time an angel wants to get in the, 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 the octagon with you and uh, two men in, one men out, don't get in. Um, it says that they're greater in might and power. And again, as we study the, the, the angelology or the study of angels, um, you know, first thing I got to break the bad news to you guys. When you die, you don't become an angel. When, when a little one dies, God didn't need an extra angel in heaven. You, you receive a glorified body. And the Bible actually talks about your position in your heavenly body throughout heaven as elevated above the angels. And that, and that the angels are watching your life. And one of the things are, you are teaching and, and ministering to angels, the Bible says, because they, 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 they travel in and out of the presence of God every day and they understand faith, but they look at you who's never seen God and don't have any kind of you, everything you, you have to believe and know about God through the word and faith. And they marvel and they're blessed by you. But the Bible says that in might and in power, one day when you receive your glorified body, then maybe you can get in the octagon with a couple of these angels because you'll have the body like them. But um, an angel, one angel in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in one night goes through the Assyrian army and wipes out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. Israel lays down the... The, the, their prayer requests before the Lord and they spread them all, the threats and they pray over them and they look over the wall and the Assyrian soldiers are at the wall and they go to sleep that night and they wake up the next morning and they look over the wall and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers wiped out in a night and the Bible says one angel of the Lord went through and wiped them out. So when Jesus told Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter pulled out his sword and he went to chop the high priest servant in between his head and the guy ducked and bounced off the side of his head and cut his ear off. And Jesus picked up the guy's ear and he healed it. And what did he tell Peter? He said, Peter, put your sword away. No man takes my life, I give it freely. If, if, it, was, if it was power, I could call seven or 12 legions of angels, is what he said. I could call 12 legions of angels to my side right now. That's 72,000 angels. Was it a lack of power on Jesus' part? If one angel of the Lord goes through in one night and kills, you guys getting even at math, you guys falling asleep. One angel of the Lord in one night, 185,000 Assyrians, 72,000 angels is, is a powerful army. And Jesus says it wasn't a matter of, of a lack of power. So here Peter tells us that they, they are greater in power and might, but even they won't bring a reviling accusation against the Lord, against before the Lord. So in Jude 1 9, listen to this. It says, Yet Michael, the archangel, one of the three, in contending with the devil, when he, when he disputed about the body of Moses, he dared not bring him against him a reviling accusation, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. You know what? I hear these pastors and ministries and, um, you know, and, and everything is like, oh, you just tell that devil and you, you know, you, you devil this and you have this conversation with the devil and you tell that devil, you, you know, and you just power the devil, devil, devil. And there's all these like conversations you're supposed to have with the devil. And, you know, he's even a guy on Facebook and I, I like his ministry and, he, he's on there the other day and he's teaching you how to how to tell the devil where to go and how to how to pray to, you know, against the devil. And it's all this stuff about I'm like, but yet biblically, Peter tells us and Jude tells us that Michael, who is an archangel, who has all that power, 
when he contended with Satan, that he himself wouldn't even, would, he said, the Lord rebuke you. So if, if, if Michael, the archangel, doesn't want to contend with Satan, he, he, neither should we. So we're not supposed to be praying to Satan, talking to Satan. What, what we do is take the advice of Michael, the archangel, and, and when it comes to Satan, we put the Lord between us and Satan. That's what we're supposed to do. Lord, rebuke you. Lord, help me. Lord, be with me. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And everything is just, it, it, we pray to Jesus. We talk to Jesus. And we put Jesus between us and Satan in those temptations. And we're not kicking Satan down or kicking him in the eye or praying to him, telling him where to go. Just say, the Lord rebuke you. So that, that was the doom of false teachers, that, that they are set for doom. And next we have the depravity. Now, now, what does depravity mean? Depravity is how far you can fall. I've illustrated the depravity of the human heart before. You know what the Bible says about, about the human heart? It says that it's de- deceitfully wicked and who can know it? That the human heart is desperately wicked. What does the world tell you? What does psychology and philosophy tell you? The answer is within you. Some flower and deep inside, you just got to find it and let it bloom. That it, you know, it's within you. That's a bunch of garbage. The Bible says what you're going to find deep in the recesses of your own heart apart from Jesus is depravity, is wickedness. And, and, and it's Jesus that goes in and changes that and heals that. The atrocities that are committed. We, told, we talked about the Menendez brothers a couple of weeks ago. Those are the two young men for money who went in and shot their mom in the face 40 times with a shotgun at point blank range. How in the world could you shoot your mom in the face with a shotgun? Because of the depravity of man. Because the heart is desperately wicked above all things and who can know it? And when it goes on a slide apart from Jesus, right? We, we, could, we could get pretty nasty in here and tell stories of where and, and what the human heart is capable of given that depravity. And, and so for these ministers and for these, these false prophets, some of them have, have slid down that, that line of depravity pretty far. And Peter's going to use a couple of examples. It says, but these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness. And those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime, they are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deception while they feast with you. Having eyes full of adultery, they cannot cease from sin, enticing unspeakable unstable souls they have a heart trained in covetous practices and and are accused children you know one of the things that um, people have discovered in in life and one of the things that's the biggest enemy of the gospel and, and the truth and the love of jesus christ is this fleecing of the flock that that we're being warned of here there's a ton of money to be made in religion the catholic church if it were a country would be like the third largest country in the world the, the, the LDS church last year alone, just in a benevolence, um, was budget was $3 trillion. That's what the T. Um, the Christian church, which is the largest church in the world, we would be, you know, if, if it was all resourced and together, like some of those things are, are put together, we would, we would be the largest country in the world. And, and so there's, there's a ton, are we the wealthiest country in the world, if it was a country? There, there are tons of, and there's just money. And, and there's so many people that have come to fleece the flock of God as a result that we're warned for. And Peter says, you'll know them by their fruits. And they're so unscrupulous. You know, how would you like to, you know, some of these guys will write letters. Oh, oh, sister, so-and-so, I've been praying for you and the Lord has put you on my heart. 
and, and, and God wants to give you a special blessing. All you have to do is write a check in, in this envelope and send it back to me and unleash this blessing that God wants to pour out on your life. And little old ladies on, on, on social security and a fixed income are writing checks and sending them to these guys. And these guys are becoming, you know, flying Lear jets around the world. They're private jets fleecing the flock of God with this robbery and usury. And how would you like to stand in their shoes on Judgment Day? How would you like to stand before the Lord and give account for that and the fleecing of the flock of God? And, and, and again, when we try to witness, it's one of the things that's difficult. And one of the things in church that people always say, oh, church is about money. They just want your money. Well, that's true a lot of places. It really is. That, that's, that's the reality of it. And, and Peter warns it. And then he says, he's going to give us an example. Look at, he says in verse 15, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. So we have this interesting story about this prophet. And now again, in the context of false prophets and false teachers, we have this, this story of Balak, who is the king and, and a prophet of God named Balaam. Now Balaam was, was a guy who at one point was being used by God. He really was a good teacher. He was a good prophet. He would, he would speak the oracles and the things of God. But at some point in his life, he changed. At some point in his life, he, 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 he got greedy for money and he turned and, and sinned. And so Balaam, Balak, the king, he comes to this prophet and he says, hey, come with me and, and I want you to curse the, 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 the people of Israel and, and pronounce a curse on them. And, and Balaam says, I, I can't do that. And so he goes to the Lord and he prays and he says, Lord, can, can I go with the king? And, and the Lord says, no, you can't go with him. So he tells the guys, well, I, I can't go with you. Even if, and he's dropping a hint, even if you brought all the gold to fill my house, I still couldn't go with you. So they go back and they tell Balak, the king, and what do they come back with? So much gold to fill his house. And, 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 they, and, and, they, and they say, so he goes to the Lord, Balaam does. He says, Lord, can I, can I go with him? And the Lord says, no, you can't go with him. And the king, the king says, you're a fool. I have the power to make you a very wealthy man if you just come with me. And so Balaam finally says, Lord, can I go? And, and, and by this point, men, like your wife would say, the Lord says, fine. Fine. Go ahead. And so he gets on his donkey and he's heading towards Balak. And, and the donkey stops in the middle of the road. And, and Balaam's so mad, he's angry with the donkey and he starts hitting the donkey. And, and then the donkey gets down on its like all fours and it's, it pushes uh, Balaam's leg up against the wall. So he's pinned and he can't move. And he takes his staff and he starts hitting the donkey on the head to go. And finally, the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey and the donkey says, hey, man, why are you hitting me? And Balaam's like, Balaam starts having a conversation. Like he doesn't think it's strange that his donkey's talking to him. He starts having a conversation with him. And then the donkey is like reasoning with him. Like the donkey actually has more common sense than he does. He says, the donkey says to Balaam, haven't I been a good donkey for you all these years? Now, why did I just go south now? Why are you hitting me? I've been a good donkey for you. And Balaam said, if I had a sword, I'd kill you. There was an angel in the, in the road with a fiery sword that was going to kill Balaam and the donkey. And the donkey was trying to save his life. And then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes to be able to see what the donkey was doing. And the Lord spoke through a donkey to, to Balaam. Well, as the story goes on, Balaam being enticed by these riches and this gold, he goes and he begins to prophesy what, what he's hoping to be a curse over the nation of Israel to get the gold from the king Balak. 
And, and as Balaam begins to prophesy, only blessing comes out. And Balak says, what are you doing? I told you to curse him and you're blessing him. Don't you know I can make you a very wealthy man? And, and so he goes a second time to, to curse him and he opens his mouth and blessing comes out. And the third time, the same thing. And finally, he goes to, to Balak and in order to get the money, he says, I, I can't curse him. I, anything comes out of my mouth, the Lord is only blessing. He said, but you can curse him. Here's how you do it. And in the doctrine of Balaam, which the book of Revelation warns us again, he tells, ba- he tells Balak, he says, send your, your young maidens, send your young gals, your pretty gals in, in their scantily clad clothes through the, the, the camp of Israel and, the, and entice the young men in the camp of Israel to have relations with these girls. And then God will have to curse them for their sin, for their sexual sin. And so that's exactly what Balak does. They take their young maidens, they take their girls, they send them through the camp of Israel. The young men are enticed and they go into these women and then God has to curse Israel for their sin and judge Israel for their sin. And Balaam gets the money and it didn't work out for him. He later died. He didn't get ill-gotten gain. He didn't prosper from it. And so this this idea of the, the false prophet. But the interesting thing about the story of Balaam to me is that Balaam was at one point a man of God. And that we have to be on our guard. We have to be able to recognize a false prophet. We have to be able to recognize a false Christ and those things. And there's only one way to recognize it. And Peter already told us in chapter 1, which is what? Being in the Word. It's the Word of God. A bank teller. How does a bank teller recognize counterfeit money? Does she study a bunch of different counterfeits? No, what they do is they have them study the real thing. They have them handle it and fold it and smell it and deal with it on a you know, an ongoing basis. And then if they come across the counterfeit in the, and they'll put a counterfeit in, they, something just is off. They, they, it just is not the real thing. How do, you, how do you recognize a counterfeit? You know the real thing. You know Jesus. You know the word. You have the Lord in your life and in your heart. And then it says in verse um, 15, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And so these are false teachers who have fallen into a depravity for money and they've done it to get rich. But he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice. That's talking about me. Restrain the madness of the prophet. And these are, these are wells without water, clouds carried by tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And then the last section is the deception of false, false teachers that we have to be on our aware, aware about. Now, this, this false prophet, there's another Old Testament example that I share all the time, a little interesting story like Balak, Balak and Balaam. But there's an old prophet who lives in a town. And they're just described as the old prophet and the young prophet. And and the young prophet from a faraway town or a distant town, he's sent to give the king a prophecy. And God tells this young man, he says, when you go, you don't stop and have dinner with anybody. You go deliver the message and you go home. And so the young man comes, he delivers the message. And the old prophet, here's the young man that came and delivered the message. But I guess because the old prophet at this point in his life wasn't willing to deliver the message that God wanted him to deliver. So God brought somebody else to do it. And the old man intercepts the young guy on his way home. And he says, hey, come to my house for dinner. And the young guy says, no way, man. I ain't going anywhere. I can't. God told me, go deliver my message and don't stop for dinner or anybody's house and get home. And so then the old guy sends message back to the young prophet. He says, an angel, this story in the Old Testament, Kings, look it up. He said, an angel of the Lord appeared to me and told me you should come to my house. 
and, and that it's okay. And so he sends word back to the young prophet. The young prophet says, well, if an angel appeared to you, well, then I guess I'll go. So the young man goes back and he has dinner at the old prophet's house and, and the old prophet confesses and it says that he lied. The old man says, hey, I lied. So, so I, you have this kind of dichotomy, right? Like this difference. You have this guy, the Bible describes as a prophet and yet in the same hand, he's a liar. And so the, old, the young guy gets on his horse and he begins to leave and on the way out, he's mauled and killed by a bear. And then the old guy's like feeling bad about himself, I guess. That, that the young guy, but again, God spoke to his heart. And, and, and that, that there, there are, I guess, what prophets, but the point being that they can lie and that, that oftentimes you see these examples where they are liars. So we have to be aware of deception of false teachers. In verse 18, it says, For when they speak a great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in terror. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also is brought into bondage. For if they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. We get this um, last warning of these false prophets. You know, Jesus told us in Matthew 23. And Matthew 23 is a pretty hardcore chapter of Jesus warning the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and it's a whole list of, of Jesus saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And we get this warning of Jesus that fits in Second Peter in verse um, number 15. Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you yourselves. So these these false teachers travel land and sea to go out and tell people about their false religion. And Jesus warned that once they find a proselyte, they make him twice as much a son of hell as themselves. So in closing, beware of false teachers. God's going to deal with them. Beware that there are false prophets and that you're responsible to be able to identify and to know. And that that the only way you're going to know is to be in the word. How do you know what's true? You know, that's a good question. I get it all the time as a pastor. How do I know what's true? How do I know who to believe? I go to your church. You say this. I go down the street. This other church says this. You know, and there's all this stuff, 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 stuff out there. How do you know what's true? Go to the Word of God and read it for yourself. Find out what's true. You're not going to stand before God one day and say, well, I got deceived or I didn't know. Because you're required to know. You're required to seek these things out. And they're out there. And we have to be on our guard. Broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to, to salvation. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. So worship team's coming up to close. Um, I want to share today with everybody. Uh, Lydia and I are going to be up front here in a minute. And if anybody would like individual prayer during this last song, we... We're here to pray for you and meet, meet with you. If you just want to talk or you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. I um, 
have a story. I try to tell it very quickly. But when I, when I was a year old, my dad died. And um, my mom was pregnant with my little sister. And I had, um, had seven kids and was pregnant with number eight when my dad died. And my mom was awesome, amazing. And she, you know, she, she stayed and she raised us kids. She worked hard and, um, you know, just did life. And I don't remember her dating or being gone or, you know, she was, she was busy with us kids all the time. And she put us first our whole lives. And when I was 20 years old, I, you know, we didn't have, we weren't in a Christian home. We, we lived busy. We lived latchkey lives and grew up on the street. And when I was 20 years old, I came to know Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And at the time, I was in a ton of bondage. I was in a ton. I was in a lifestyle that was addicted and, and in, in bondage to the world when I, when I got saved. And, and I went, started this church, started going to a church, Calvary Chapel. It happened to be Calvary Chapel, South Bay in Gardena, California. And, and I was still pretty messed up and coming out of the world. And I went to a Sunday morning service and Pastor Steve Mays said, um, come back on Sunday night for a prayer meeting. And, and normally that's not something that, you know, I would have been a part of a prayer. I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know anything about it. You know, it's for kind of a believers meeting and big, huge church, 1500 people. And I go back and there's about 80 people in this prayer meeting and I'm sitting in the second row. And, and I don't know why I'm there. I just know the Holy Spirit spoke to me and told me I was supposed to be there. And in the message, Pastor Steve said, there's somebody in here and you have, you were here this morning. I saw you here this morning and you have bitterness in your heart and God wants to deliver you from that bitterness today. And, and, and I'm thinking, I knew it was me immediately. I knew the Holy Spirit was calling me out and speaking to me and wanted to heal me that day. And I'm thinking about all the people that I'm thinking, you know, I got that kid, David, in high school. We used to, we fought like four times and, you know, I, I know I don't like him, but I'm not really bitter at anybody. I don't have anybody that I hate or anybody that really bothers me at night. And God began to speak to me that, that I was bitter at my dad and that I had a deep-seated bitterness of abandonment for my dad leaving me, even though he died. But I felt the same way as if I was abandoned and I had grown just a, a bitterness and God wanted to deliver me. Something I didn't really know that I had, but as the Holy Spirit came on me that day and I had this like literally this weight come off my shoulders of healing. And only God could go down in that recess of my heart and touch something that I didn't even realize was there and that needed healed and touched. But God wanted to do something special in my life and touch and heal me that day. And it changed my life. And to this day, God, God has healed me and did something that was miraculous. And maybe there's somebody in here and maybe you know you have it. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's just a hurt. Maybe, maybe there's something that the Holy Spirit wants to come down and just touch. And you know what? We can't manufacture it. We can't make it happen. All we can do is open our hearts and ask and say, Lord, is, is it me? Lord, is there something you want to deal with in my heart? So as we sing this last song, um, it's one song for your life. I just encourage you, don't take off just yet until this last song is over. Sing it to the Lord and, 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 and ask God if there's something he wants to deal with in your life. If you want to get your heart and life right with the Lord Jesus Christ, you want to become a Christian, you're not sure if you die today, you go to heaven. I'm going to lead us all in a prayer here in a moment. I want you to pray with me. There's no magic in the words. There's only magic in your heart that says, Lord, come into my life and forgive me of my sins. And if you confess that and you receive the Lord in your heart, today you'll go to heaven. Today you'll know that you know that you know that you're born again. So if you guys would pray with me together as a church. Dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Wash me clean. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.